Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as your people around your word and discern the wisdom of our brother Solomon, which has stood the test of the ages and is as pertinent and apropos now as it ever was. We pray that you humble us. We pray, Lord, that we would submit ourselves to your word. I pray that your people would measure up what is said this morning to the standard of your word, and that if it is found to be accurate, they would repent where repentance is needed. And I pray that we would all together grow in the sanctifying grace of your Son. And I praise you and I thank you for these things ahead of time. In Jesus' name, amen. This afternoon, we're going to speak once more to how masculine identity is to be expressed in God's creation. And as was true last time, and as was stated last time, these lessons are not for men only. They will be beneficial to our ladies, but they will be more uniquely geared toward men. And in today's sermon, actually, there's also going to be quite a bit of overlap into Christian parenting as well, so for those of you that have been asking for that, we are going to start to scratch the surface at least. But in this sermon, the overarching theme is masculine power. Man of God is to be powerful. We are to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power, according to Ephesians 6.10. And as is clear in that passage and so many others, Christian men are not intrinsically powerful. Our power, rather, as with our wisdom, originates in God and is translated to us in Christ. But the practice of Christian power, although a spiritual enterprise and therefore a divine gift, does certainly require our focus. And because most men lack focus, they have mostly potential power. That potential power is obviously power unrealized, which is obviously not actually power, inasmuch as the potential for a thing does not make that thing manifest. And so what you have is a state of mere potentiality. And that state defines the majority of the natural men in our age and to much greater extent than it should many of the Christian men in our age. We have men who are endowed by their creators with the potential for great intellectual strength, but this intellectual strength remains forever latent because instead of a stream of productive creative thought coming from him, he has Netflix streamed to him. And so he remains trapped in a kind of intellectual stasis. He has the potential power to love a woman, which is a great power. But his power is instead dispersed into 10,000 women in his cell phone who rob him of power in the same way that Delilah robbed Samson of his. And he will, because of them, because of his own lack of self-control, never know really what love is or what it means to have any real connection. He has great potential for physical strength, but instead of realizing it, he becomes obese through gluttony, and thus the modern man is typically intellectually, spiritually, and physically flaccid, which then makes him the opposite of the tree firmly planted by streams of water of Psalm 1. Instead, he is better likened to the withering leaf suggested by the same psalm. Let me ask you, do you remember a gentleman by the name of Onan? From way back in Genesis 38, O-N-A-N, 
If you don't remember him by name, I think you will when I recall to you the circumstance of that chapter. Onan is the individual who had a responsibility before the Lord to provide a child to a certain woman. It was a familial obligation. And so he, to use the veiled euphemistic language of Scripture, entered into her, but then withdrew from her before the transaction, shall we say, was complete, and instead spilled his seed on the ground. And the Lord so hated what he had done to that poor woman and the way that he had used her that he killed him immediately. I raise that because in that circumstance, Onan offers something of a metaphor for the modern man in general. Our society is comprised of men who just waste their substance, spill it on the ground, and it all comes to naught. Men in our civilization want nothing, they build nothing, they break what has been built, they leave unbroken what should be broken, Consequently, they are desperate. And their desperation is largely derived from the knowledge that when they die, nothing of them is going to endure in this world. Even if a keen awareness of this eludes them because they are perpetually distracted by screens, they nevertheless feel it in their souls as image bearers of God. Every single image bearer needs to have a future beyond this life. Every human soul is created this way because as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in their hearts. They know intuitively that there is something more and that they are built for that. Now, for the Christian, this future is obviously understood to be heaven. That is the greatest fulfillment of this. But we also have children who connect us, who moor us to this temporal world and to the future. Now, pagans in past generations only had children. They didn't have a concept really of eternity, but they at least had children. Now they often don't even have that. And when they do have children, they're broken. They come from broken homes, so the notion that they're going to improve a whole lot in this world in the future is folly. And this lack of investment in the future makes the people in our age volatile and dangerous. You know, when you were a kid, it was probably well known to you that you don't go out of your way to mess with that other kid on the playground who doesn't have anything left to lose because there's no restraint. Consequences mean nothing to him. Well, that now defines our whole society. What happens to people who have no future because they're barren or perhaps because they have a progeny but a broken one who aggressively seek to cast eternity or even the coming decades out of their hearts one of the things that characterizes them is a raging against the past, and we see this everywhere. They have failed themselves, but because they are selfish children, they accept no personal responsibility for their failures and instead blame their parents, and so everything that their parents built must be torn down. But also in their barrenness to hell with the future as far as they are concerned. So we have a generation that has no personal interest in the future generation because they've not contributed to it, and so they will leave everything in the present desolate. Because why not? They are inventors of new evil, as Paul said. Because although being creative in this way risks civilizational collapse because you're undoing things like marriage and biological sex, which are pillars of society, it doesn't matter. They have nothing to lose. It won't be their children who bear the consequences because they're intentionally sterile. Oh, obviously, that's a bleak outlook for the future, and yet not entirely. As I've indicated in the past, if the, if the uh, pagans breed themselves out of this civilization, and God's people will simply be faithful and continue to be fruitful and multiply, then we will own the coming generations. But procreation is not enough. We must be godly. We must equip our children to be godly, and this again requires focus. And this is what we turn to Solomon to teach us again today. He will show us through the book of Proverbs the who's, what's, why's, and how's of the godly focus that we as men are to have. So to that end, point number one, and again, ladies, these are going to have great merit for you as well. But point number one is the proverbial man knows how to subdue and direct his God-given power and strength toward righteousness how to channel the strength that the Lord has given him to a righteous end. Solomon's message 
to his son in this book is one of strength from beginning to end. But he is not preaching strength unrestrained or unguided. God gave men powerful bodies so that these would be used for his purposes, which requires that they be guided by powerful minds. And the powerful mind is the wise mind that fears the Lord. And that wise, powerful mind is exactly what Solomon seeks to instill in his son. And I'm going to give you some passages here, and we're going to expound and expand upon them as we go. And we will move through them sequentially. Proverbs 1, 8 through 19 is where we start. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole, as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. You might say that those who live by the sword are going to die by it. Do not give your strength to this. Because you'll find in the final analysis that that gun you had in your hand was actually pointed back at you. Your power is not to be exerted in the direction of taking advantage of others, of harming others. Proverbs 3, 30 through 31 is next. Do not contend with a man without cause if he's done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. Dealing with what comes and exercising strength in responding to what comes is something that we as men must do. We must step up. Causing strife where it does not need to be does not make you a man. It makes you a fool. And you will suffer the consequences of it. And so will your family if you have one. And even if you don't have one, if you're a Christian man, you have a local church, you're going to hurt those people. Every man is connected to somebody else, and somebody else is going to get hurt. Don't give your power to creating problems that need not exist. Proverbs 10:12 is next. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. The powerful man is to take that power, he's to harness it, and he is to love with strength. Love with all the strength of a man. Love with his whole heart. Throw himself into loving his family, loving his church, loving the lost. Proverbs ten twelve: hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. I just did that, didn't I? All right. Uh, well, you got it twice, so apparently you needed to hear that more than once. Proverbs twelve sixteen is the next. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. Say you're in a company of many people, and somebody says something that is disrespectful to you. The man who lacks self-control will respond impulsively immediately. And sometimes an immediate response is warranted, but never an impulsive one, and never one that amounts to lashing out in anger. Very often, if you're in these circumstances and you're wise, you will take a few steps back and then respond at a later point when you've gathered yourself. Don't just let that dog off its leash. Subdue, control the power, the strength that the Lord has given you. Similarly, Proverbs fourteen twenty nine through 30, he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. And that's not passion in general. It's passion in the context of what he's saying. Don't be a hothead, essentially. Think and process through the situation. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. Very often, things that people are angry about are things that if they just stopped and thought about, they wouldn't be angry. They have misunderstood, and as a result of their misapprehension, they respond in volatility. Along these lines is also Proverbs 20, verse 3, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, 
but any fool will quarrel. Wise man avoids the conflict that he is able to avoid. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This is a necessary application of your strength, my friend, and it requires more strength to do this than it does to simply, again, lash out. Now, putting these passages together, we are learning that a wise man, though he may, and I would say should, if possible, have the strength for brutality, is not defined as a brute. He is as Moses was, or he is to be as Moses was, and that is humble, is gentle, it is meek, depending upon which translation, and Moses was known as the most meek man who was alive. We are to learn from that. We are to be gentle whenever we are able And interestingly, this gentleness even characterizes the way that godly men treat mere animals. Proverbs 12.10, a righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. I remember hearing about, I think it was cows a number of years ago, being um, tortured. And I remembered thinking, the biggest problem with that is what it reveals of the soul of the people who are doing it. If you'll do that to animals, you'll do it to people. Also consider Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Now, this gives us a bit of a balance here to what we have been stressing this whole time, and a needed balance. We have, from the beginning, said that a man must speak truth to his neighbor, right? You have to get involved. You have to be invested in each other's lives. You have to actively help correct the sins that are present in those around you. You also, though, have to have the wisdom to know what doesn't need to be corrected in the moment and the things that you can leave to the Lord. It is His glory to overlook a transgression. There are times where grace is properly exercised along these lines, and there has to be an occasion for this. There are certain situations that you've got to be content to say, you know what, this person is growing. I'm going to let that go. Maybe they said a joke that went a little bit too far in mixed company. If it goes way too far, then maybe you have to say something. But there are things on a level that just don't need to be corrected by you in the immediate. And if we do correct everything, again, this is just going to be a shooting match that nobody wants to be a part of. But this requires controlling that strength, controlling that um, God-given power. Out-of-control expressions of raw power are befitting wild boars. They're not befitting of Christian men. And this is why Solomon stresses this. And to connect this back to identity in Christ, if you recall, before Jesus flipped the tables, what did he do? Braided a cord into whips. Into a whip. Braided cords into a whip, rather. You can also think in terms of God's wrath. Okay, God's wrath is never out of control. It is always focused. It is always under control, which is to say that God has wrath. He does not have rage. And there's a lesson for us in the actions of God in Christ. Our minds must always guide our strength. Our strength must never be servant to mere emotion. Now, Solomon's emphasis in the passages that we looked at is rightly placed upon controlling strength and not expressing it foolishly. However, if you were to come away with the perspective that Solomon was some kind of a pacifist, you would be incorrect. Proverbs 24, 5 through 6, A wise man is strong and a man of knowledge increases power, for by wise guidance you will wage war. And in abundance of counselors there is victory. And as he said in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for every season and purpose under heaven. And war was included in that. It's also true on a personal level. True of a nation, true of an individual. So understand here that the restraint that Solomon promotes in so many passages is a matter of wisdom. It's not a matter of some weird Anabaptist-like concept of Christian pacifism. It's certainly not cowardice. Part of the reason that men are created to be strong is for battle. And we went through this last year when we talked about Psalm 144. Train my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And what was David fighting for? He was fighting for beautiful young ladies, their daughters, their sons who were strong, the grain in the storehouses, their wives, a posterity for his people. 
There are righteous reasons to wage war, but war is always to be waged with wisdom. A wise man is strong, and by wise guidance guidance you will wage war. As Christian men, we've been placed into a fallen world with the task of preserving the virtue of our wives, our families, our churches, and our communities. And because this world is fallen, there are many predators who desire to despoil the virtue of those who are in our care. And brother, the preservation of women and children in this society in general is not a task for women. And it's not to say that women have no role, but primarily the role is not theirs. Now, mama bear is is a commonly used description in our day. And I hear it often used of ladies who will stand up for righteousness in school board meetings and things and say, actually, you can't um, show my children gay pornography. Now, let me ask you, given the prevalence of Mama Bear, is Mama Bear succeeding in stemming the societal rot? She's not. But why is Mama Bear failing? Is she failing? She's not doing enough? No, she's not doing enough. She's failing because a responsibility that she cannot live up to has been left to her. Mama Bear has great protective power in a great role to play in protecting her children. But Mama Bear has been created by the Lord to have the capacity to leave bruises and scratches. And we are way past bruises and scratches in this society and in the state of its degradation. We are to the point of needing shattered teeth and broken bones. And that requires Papa Bear. If ever there's an appropriate focus for our power to be spent on, brothers, it's the preservation of women and children. We are not to leave it to our women in the way that the pagans have. Now, in conclusion of this part of our consideration, brothers, your strength is not to be spent on petty squabbles or in preservation of your pride or certainly on porn or promiscuity or on food or wine or on soul-crushing hatred or thievery or violence without cause. It is rather to be directed into one powerful stream, and that is the building and the preserving of life, both of the spiritual and the natural kind. Be not like Onan, who shirked his responsibility and is remembered forever for his wasted seed. Be like Christ. In all his ministry responsibilities, in his earthly life and daily affairs, he never lost sight of the defense of his people. My hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. I was always on that prize until his hour had come. And he knew and understood it. And then he took that hill at Calvary and bore the wrath of God and protection of his people and preservation of our souls. Now our task is surely different. But our roles are, as his was, that of protectors and defenders, whose strength is a shield to our families and churches and a sword against the children of the devil. And if Papa Bear had been Papa Bear several decades ago, we would not be in the situation that we were in. The second that anybody started talking about tearing the wombs out of little girls and castrating little boys, that would have been dealt with. It would have been dealt with physically, and it would have been a proper application of violence, and that is what should have happened, but it didn't, and so now we're here. Now we arrive at our second point, and this is really just an extension of the first point, and that is that the proverbial man is a diligent, dedicated worker, while the fool is marked by laziness. Solomon's very clear that our strength as men is to enable us to work hard in a vocation. As we discussed last time, vocational work is not the only kind of work that we're required to do. We work diligently in all categories, but this is certainly a kind of work that we're required to engage in. And indeed, it will occupy an enormous portion of our lives, and it's supposed to. We're required to earn our bread. We are required to earn bread for a family through the work that we do and to support the local church that we attend and are members of through that work as well. And Solomon has a tremendous amount to say about this. Here is just a sampling, though, and this amounts to a smattering of concepts that I will expand upon as I go through each of these. Proverbs 6, 1 through 11 is where we start. My son, if you've become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you've been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught in the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself since you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. 
Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Do not become a debtor, says Solomon. To the greatest extent that you can, be free of that burden and that requires hard work. If you have become a debtor, do whatever you have to do to get out of that. Whatever is reasonably within your control. And certainly, if you're a husband and a father and your family is burdened by that debt, that responsibility to free them like the animal from the hunter is yours. Proverbs 10, verse 15, the rich man's wealth is his fortress, the ruin of the poor is their poverty. This isn't so much a command or an admonition, I think, as it is just an observation, but it's an observation well made. There is a kind of security that comes from financial well-being and financial success. Now, that doesn't replace the security that we have in God, but we are to build uh, a solid foundation for our family in this way, by working hard for them. Proverbs 10.26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. I don't so much understand the vinegar to the teeth reference. I mean, I do understand it, but I don't understand it experientially. But the smoke to the eyes thing, I very much get because we heat the house with wood and we have fires in the back all the time. Everybody's caught a face full of that. What is the response? You just, you wince and you pull back. You do whatever you can to get away from that immediately. That is the nature of the lazy person. That is how repugnant and off-putting they are, that you just want to be away from them. Proverbs 12, 11. Let that, by the way, be a lesson to you, young lady who's not yet found a gentleman. Stay away from that guy. Let him be like smoke to your eyes, because he will be after you're married, I assure you. Proverbs 12:11. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. There are spiritual implications, as you can see there, to hard work. It is not good for the soul of a man to not work hard. That's a fact. Proverbs 14.23, in all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Have you known the big talker? The guy that's always got a plan? But that plan never involves actually putting his hand to the plow and doing something. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. It's great to be a dreamer. Lord's given me the opportunity to do a lot of things. I started a couple businesses, made a lot of mistakes. I, I you know, pursued these dreams and I was blessed to have been able to. But if all it is is dreams and you never actually do anything, and you're sinking your own ship and that of everybody around you. And if there are brothers like that in local churches that are always talking and never doing, they need to be called on that by the other brothers. And say, okay, but right now, what are you doing? Well, five years from now, I'd like to be doing this and that and the other thing. All right, well, everything requires work, my friend. So get to it. Proverbs 18.9. He also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. He who is slack. Complacent is another term that Solomon uses elsewhere. Standing still or stagnation is a myth because you live in a world in which everything is breaking down. So standing still is not actually standing still. It's moving backwards. You're simply going with the current. So in order to just maintain the status quo, you have to work hard. In order to actually get ahead, you have to really work hard. And if you are complacent, you are a part of the destruction. You are lending yourself to it. He who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. Proverbs 22.13, the sluggard says, There's a lion outside, I will be killed in the streets. Do you know what that means? Because I didn't necessarily catch it the first time either. The sluggard says, 
there's a lion outside, I will be killed in the streets. So obviously the statement, there's a lion outside, I will be killed in the streets, relates to the fact that he is a sluggard, but the question is how? Well, he has invented a reason to not go to work. The lion doesn't actually exist. The threat is imagined, it's not real. He's saying there's a possibility that I might get eaten if I go outside, so I'll just take a sick day here at work. I will use it as justification to not work. By the way, does the notion that there is some perceived threat outside uh, being justification to not go to work strike you as familiar? Indeed. Fortunately, at least I can say that when everything got shut down, I just went right back to work anyways. But, um, man, I've been doing that for a really, really long time. Now let's end this on a positive note. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And that kind of skill that puts you before royalty only comes through hard work. That last passage represents a kind of excellence that is the culmination of the principles found in all those other passages. The man who is diligent to produce, he is diligent to learn, he is diligent in the mastery of a craft. He will have that honored and he will, I assume, make a handsome living working for that kind of clientele. So that's the substance of Solomon's teaching on work ethic. That our task goes beyond establishing that. We need to ask ourselves the question, what is the state of affairs in our society and in so many of our churches so that we can apply the things that he has taught us and apply them well? Well, here's where I think we are. And I don't think there's a case to be made for this not being true. In the history of the world, there has never been more lazy young people in a single society ever, not in terms of percentage, raw number, or degree. And this has happened because of our unprecedented wealth, advances in agrarian technology as well. We don't have to work as hard for the basic necessities of life. But ultimately, it's happened because you have a whole lot of parents who have allowed these advances to retard their children's development. Up until really, really recently, if you look in the course of human history, we've had to work very hard to just subsist, to exist. You know, you didn't have the the prepackaged foods. You couldn't go to the grocery store. All these things had to be procured and produced, pulled out of the ground, and then put away. So to maintain one person's life, a man, a woman, or a child, required a tremendous amount of effort. In order to heat the home, you had to chop down wood and bring it in. So you weren't going to have lazy children in the way that we do now, for the most part, because those would then become dead children. So lazy children were pretty much relegated to very, very wealthy families. They were the only ones that had the opportunity to do that. Whereas now, everybody in this country is extraordinarily wealthy by the standards of history, even the homeless. And so children and young adults can become as lazy as their parents are going to allow them. Now, well, laziness is clearly sin, and people, as you know, are responsible spiritually for their own sins. This is a sin in degree, at least, that simply is not possible without the parents who have enabled it. Lazy people created by coddling parents have always existed, but not of this kind and not to this degree. The boomers have created the laziest generation in the history of the world, and the Gen Xers have picked up where they left off. And these parents have good intentions, generally speaking, They desire to give their children what they need. But often they think through need only very superficially. So they need food, they need water, they need shelter, they need spending money and social outings because we're not houseplants. They need this sports program, that other program of a different nature. They need this device and that device. And not all of those things are bad. In fact, really none of those things are bad if they're held in balance. But what the boomer and Gen X parent often fails to consider is that the nature of need changes as the children age. The toddler needs the aforementioned items and social pursuits, and they also need them to be provided by the parents because they can provide nothing for themselves. 
Uh, the 20 to 30-year-old child still needs those things, but they must not continue to be provided by the parents because what the 20 to 30-year-old needs if he or she is not to become the kind of sluggard that Solomon warns of is need. They need need. They need to need. In contrast to the sluggard of so many passages, Solomon speaks of the worker in chapter 16, verse 26. And listen to what he says. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. He needs to need. That pushes him to become productive, or her, and to become a productive person that can provide for themselves. Let me remind you briefly of the list of adjectives and descriptors used in the passages that we just looked at to describe the, putting it charitably, unmotivated individual. He or she is ensnared. They are a sluggard. They are a sleeper. They are a slumberer, and I do know that that is not the word, but not a word rather, but you get the point. They are impoverished, they are poor, they are vinegar to the tea, smoke to the eyes, lazy, a pursuer of worthless things, senseless, a big talker, a destroyer, a maker of asinine excuses like there's a lion outside that's going to eat me so I'm not going to go to work. In our day, there are many of those who occupy all of those categories in our midst. We are actually, as a society, a majority of these. Have you heard of the concept of silent quitting? familiar with this? This is where you keep your job because you want to keep the paycheck. You just stop trying. It's common enough to have a term that describes it now in our day. But behind 99 out of 100 of these wasters of their humanity is a mom or a dad who has enabled them to waste their humanity in this way. They didn't become that at 25. They were made that from the time that they were infants. And whatever the intentions of these parents, they end up becoming like a villain I once saw in a horror movie as a kid. And if this is familiar to you, understand that I'm not recommending this. It's just a very, very fitting uh, illustration. And if you're wondering why I saw horror movies as a kid, you can take that up with my parents. (laughs) But I did. Um, But in this particular film, there was a gentleman, he was an author, and uh, he got injured, I think in a car accident. It's been a really long time since I've seen it. And he ends up in the home of a woman who promises to nurse him back to health. I think his legs are broken. Um, But he gets to the point where he has almost healed enough to leave, which was the promise. You know, once he had healed, he could leave. And she comes in with a sledgehammer and breaks both of his knees. She's not going to allow him to heal. She's not going to allow him to leave. This is what these parents are doing to their children, but they're doing it in a much more serious way than that. Because they're... Spiritual problem present in these parents is that well, their child who is now an adult desperately needs to need, the boomer Gen X parent prioritizes their own need to be needed. They continue to feed off of the provision of these material goods and spiritual goods to this child. So they can't let them grow past childhood into adulthood because what they fear most is not being needed in that way because they've become identified as this. Mom, dad, it's not something that they do. It's not even an aspect of who they are. It is the most defining characteristic of them. Their identity is not primarily in Christ. It is as a mother or a father. And often this kind of ungodly intervention does not stop after children get married. It continues. It exists in the form of babysitting to the point of surrogacy, constant financial contributions. This is in direct violation to what is taught in Scripture. Men are to leave and cleave. Women are as well. Adult parents are not to be involved in this way. Men are also to build their own lives. 
to lead their wives as Christ led His church, not to be emasculated like that by parents who mean well but lack self-control and self-discipline and idolize being a father or a mother. If parents have a son in their home well into his 20s or beyond, those parents are almost certainly sinning against their son. They're obviously extenuating circumstances. But more importantly, they're also sinning against God. And there needs to be repentance. If an adult daughter works and still lives at home and contributes nothing to the household, the same is true. Now, the situation with a young lady is different. She is not in Scripture constituted in a way and called to build in the same way that a man is. She is rather to have something built for her so that she may produce life and give that life to her husband. So it is appropriate for her to stay longer than it is for him. But let's practically talk about what repentance looks like. And also this will be instruction for those who have not yet sinned in this way so that when you hit that stage of life, for those of you with little children, you know how to honor the Lord by not actively creating the Solomonic sluggard in either your sons or your daughters. And basically this comes down to communicating with the child and establishing with them a plan that honors what the Lord has created them to be and honors the commands that we're seeing here in Proverbs and that we see elsewhere in Scripture. So this is practical application. It doesn't have to be exactly this way, obviously, but this gives you a general framework, I hope. Say that you have an 18-year-old son and he finishes high school. It is incumbent upon dad to go to him, and really he should have done it before this, but to make sure that he has a plan. And if he doesn't have a plan, make sure that he understands that he needs to make one. Now, an 18-year-old doesn't typically have the resources to leave the nest, right? And he doesn't really need to because 18 is really young. But 18's not a child. He's not in school anymore. Or he's not school age if he's not going to college. So there needs to be a plan. And maybe the plan for this young man is, you know, I really don't have a clue what I want to do with my life. I just need to take a couple years off and figure it out. Can that be wise? Sure it can. It's a lot wiser than spending $50,000 on part of a college education that you're not going to use. But the father needs to make clear that because this young man is still living under his roof, there will be godly priorities established in his life. You're in this quasi-weird state, young man, where you're like a man, but you still are completely dependent upon somebody else. And as a result of that, if you're going to live under his home, he needs you to know that you will not be permitted to become a sluggard. So in the intervening two years, you need to work full-time. You need to expect that from this young man. He can figure himself out while he does that. But he should also, at this even young age, be looking to support a wife and children. And it may not happen for another decade, but this is what the Lord has made him for. So he needs to start preparing for that now. That is the priority of Scripture, to be a husband and a father. And by the way, if you don't do this, what's he going to end up spending his money on? Stupid stuff. He's going to fritter it away so the father can help the son in this way. He needs to also, for the sake of his own soul, pay rent Again, he needs to need. He needs to have some skin in the game. Those who live off of others while contributing nothing to their care come to view and treat their caretakers as tools. And you see this all the time. The 20-something-year-old young person who still expects all of these things and demands all of them and gets angry when these things are not provided for by their parents. As though... They are owed these things at that age. Now, Dad, if you want to take rent from your son and you want to accumulate it in some kind of an account secretly and give it back to him when he moves out, that's your business. But he needs to learn to contribute, otherwise he's going to be selfish. And whatever the plan is that you make, you need to stick to it. So if the plan is find myself for two years while working and then move out, that's fine. But come two years, that needs to be held too. If the plan is to live at home and pay minimal rent and buy a house in four years, fine. And these, again, are just examples. But you've got to have a plan. And Proverbs speaks to that, and we're going to get to that next as we continue to move through this. But no plan is how 30-year-olds still come to occupy mom and dad's basement. 
Because one year turns into two real quick, and two turns into five, and five turns into ten. And it happens overnight. Make a plan. Make a plan based upon godly priorities. Here's another scenario. You already have a 30-year-old man living in your basement, or one who's getting close to that. You need to go to him. You need to say, listen, we've sinned by allowing you to sin. It wasn't okay. Now we've become foundational to your life in a way that the Lord never intended. So now we just, we all have to recognize it. But we do recognize that we have become this to you, so we can't just make you homeless tomorrow. Six months to a year, you need to have found an arrangement that allows you to thrive as a human being. And here's another very common scenario. Say you have an adult child who is married and may or may not have children. Now say that boomer mom and dad have made themselves critical to the daily functioning of that adult child's home, financially or in terms of child care. Not talking about occasional help or temporary relief. We're talking about a general state of being. So extenuating circumstances notwithstanding, these boomer Gen X parents have violated God's word again by preventing leaving and cleaving and the father to lead his own home and usurped him. So they need to stop intervening in this way. Again, they need to make a plan for six months to a year in the future. So you've got to find a way to come together as a family and lean upon each other as you lean upon the Lord. And to the aging parents doing this to their children, I would ask you, what do all of the strongest Christian marriages you know of have in common? Without knowing you, I can say that they all, without exception, were shaped by struggles that caused that couple to cleave and uh, leave, to leave and cleave to each other. And they learned how to rely upon each other and to cleave hard. And these struggles and these trials, they consist of financial woes, challenges with children's schedules, but they only had each other in the Lord, and so they trusted the Lord and leaned onto each other. Lydia and I have story after story of the Lord's miraculous financial provision for us in times of great need and provision in many other categories than just financial. It was these times that taught our hearts to trust the Lord to provide One of the problems that we have in our day is that there are a whole lot of married millennials who are in our local churches who don't have these stories, even though they've been married, because they have never needed their needs to be met by the Lord. They've always had their boomer parents to rely upon, and it has hurt them greatly. Proverbs 16, 26, a worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. We have so lost sight of what it means to become a productive adult and rely upon your own work and in the context of a marriage to rely upon your own spouse that we have a word called adulting, which is a 30-year-old saying how remarkable it is that they did their own laundry or paid their own bill. Hashtag adulting. Let me also say before I move off of this point that this unnatural, totally inappropriate kind of intervention in your child's life contributes greatly to depression. This intervention allows them to drift purpose, purpose, purpose. I should have taken it out because I tripped over it 18 times when I did this purposelessly through life. And purposelessness creates despair. It does, and, and for men it's especially true. Men are builders by nature. That's what God has created us to do. And so to not allow the man to build or to cultivate a scenario in which he doesn't have to build is to actually break the man himself down. He needs to have the satisfaction of Proverbs twenty four twenty seven, preparing his work outside and making it ready for himself in the field and afterwards building his house. Not your house, boomer dad, or Gen X dad. He needs that for his own soul. I've had a number of young guys now, very similar living situations, come to me and say that they're dealing with depression. And I have consistently responded with, of course you are. How would you think in your situation that you wouldn't be depressed? Your life as a grown man is still defined by your parents. You build nothing of your own. You will have no legacy. 
You know that. You understand that. You live in that state. You know, people look for some deep spiritual explanation to all kinds of depression. A lot of times, it's just very simple things. Like this, the Lord didn't create you to be this way. If you want to get out of that state, get busy. You have too much time to navel gaze because you don't have anything to build. You don't have anything to do. And if you're in this situation as a young man, I would also say that you cannot and must not wait for your parents to stop enabling your sin. Okay, most of them aren't going to if they're just left to themselves. This is deeply entrenched, this kind of idolatry that puts being a mom and a dad before all else and therefore needs to be the nurturer and the provider in perpetuity, even at the expense of the children. It's deeply ingrained into the people who are doing it. You, though, young man, are responsible for yourself. You need to be the one who establishes boundaries. So say mom says, you know what, junior, I can just watch the kids five days a week. And you're married. Well, you say, I know you can, mom. But that's bad for my kids, it's bad for my wife, it's bad for me, and it dishonors the Lord. So I am so grateful for what you've done for me. But we need to grow as a family. Or say dad says, don't worry about it, son, we'll pay that major bill again. Well, I appreciate that, dad. But you intervening like this is actually harmful to my character. And in the same way that that struggle that you always talk about and those various different struggles made you strong, I need to let myself struggle too and I need to learn how to trust the Lord to meet my needs and not you. And I hope you can understand this. I hope you don't take it as a lack of gratitude, which they probably will, by the way. And it will probably upset them. Nevertheless, you need to not take their money and not take their intervention. What is good and godly for parents is influence as the child grows. That's what you see Solomon using. You see him influencing his children with wisdom. That kind of direct intervention just cripples them. It'll cripple you. You have to break away even if they won't break themselves away. A man must at times take decisive stances. And this takes us into our next point because another consequence of parenting um, that prevents adult children from becoming adults is that they become characteristically indecisive. So point number three and we'll move through these last two more quickly, is that the proverbial man is decisive. If the boomer Gen X parents provide everything for their adult children, or at least they provide way too much for them, then who is making the major decisions about that person's life? Either by default or by design, it is the aging parents. For example, will I stay in this mediocre job that really isn't cutting it, or will I pursue something more to the betterment of my family? Well, mom and dad subsidized my existence, so I think I'll just stay. Often the thought process isn't as deliberate as that, but the result is the same. Or how about, will I trust in the Lord with providing for my family? No, I won't. Because of mom and dad. They are God to me. Or even where will I live? Well, I'm going to live close enough to mom and dad to allow them to continue to provide for me. And so on and so forth. Often these adult children carry this deferred decision-making into every major area of their life, even beyond those, because this becomes second nature to them. They can't function without the say-so of mom and dad. They are spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and professionally paralyzed. Men in particular cannot be this way. All men are to be leaders, and leaders need to make decisions, and Solomon is clear on this. And everything that we've established thus far presupposes this because action requires decisiveness, but let me give you a couple explicit statements here. Proverbs 16.3, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. You're making plans. You're looking to the Lord to establish them, but you are making plans. That's even more clear in Proverbs 16.9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Now, there's a question that I get all the time that seems much more complicated to people than it actually is. And the question is this, some variation of it. How do I know the day-to-day -day will of God? It's caused great consternation in many Christians down through the ages. As far as the Bible is concerned, and Solomon in particular, it's very, very simple. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What has to happen for the Lord to make your path straight? 
You have to have a path. Okay? You have to be acting. You have to be putting one foot in front of the other. So you study God's word. You seek the Lord in prayer. You seek wise counsel from God's people, and you take a step. And then you take another step and another. And that really is as complicated as it gets when it comes to the private decisions in all our lives that there is no chapter and verse for. With God's wisdom in hand, you assess a situation, choose left or right. Understanding that if left isn't what God wants, that path will dead end and he will open up another. And also recognizing that missteps are going to happen and mistakes are going to be made. That's a part of life. It's a part of growing as a man. Men who defer or altogether refuse to make decisions out of fear of making a misstep fail to understand that doing nothing, building nothing, and becoming nothing are grave mistakes and often far graver than messing some stuff up along the way. Earlier in the sermon, when we established the need to direct your God-given strength to a positive end, most of the passages that we looked at were framed in the negative. For example, Proverbs 3, 30 through 31, do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. Those statements that were not exclusively negative were both negative and positive. Ergo, don't do this, but do another thing instead. That wasn't my selective editing. That's the nature of his instruction. Typically emphasizes the do nots more so than the do's. Why? Well, because man in his natural state is more likely to use his strength impulsively and toward destructive ends. So he needs to be told more often than not, don't. He is what my mother told me I was all the time, which is a bull in a china shop. I heard that expression often. That has been the general disposition of men throughout the ages in culture after culture after culture. And so wisdom has largely consisted of slow down, young man. Don't break everything. Don't charge out of the gate so hard that you bring about ruin. But in our society, this has actually been reversed. We have been ravaged by feminism. The modern woman has stomped the modern man into submission, and on top of this, porn is a plenty. So he doesn't have the procreative act to motivate him in the same way that it always has throughout all of human history. Mom and dad also do everything for him, so Netflix and porn and chill. There's no concern that he's going to charge out of the gate too hard. It's just a failure to launch at all. Brother, you're not to live like this. And if you're a Christian, you're not born of this stock. You are born again according to the nature of Jesus. Do you want to see Christ-like decisiveness from Christ himself? I could choose many passages, but let me give you my favorite example. John 18, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now, if it's not readily apparent to you how that reveals decisiveness, let me explain it. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? The intercessory prayer where he knows that his hour now has come and that the Lord is about to glorify him and glorification for him means his crucifixion. So when he has just stated that he understands exactly where he is in history and that he is about to experience the greatest kind of agony that any man ever has, he went forth. That is decisiveness. And this is also what the whole of faith is all about. Abraham leaves everything that he knows to go to a different place. Moses, too. David is another great example with that sling while all the rest of them hide. Daniel, when he says no to Nebuchadnezzar, when he makes a decision for the Lord and he sticks to it, this is who you are, born-again man. So go be who you are. Make decisions. Pursue godliness. Pursue godly ends. Don't say things like, you know, there's a pretty girl who's godly. But what if I talk to her and dot, dot, dot? Well, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen to you if you don't talk to her. Be proactive. Well, I'd like to move out. I'd like to be my own man. I'd like to build a life that supports the kingdom of Christ. But, but what? What if you make mistakes? You're going to make mistakes. 
But if you don't, then you're going to look back upon your life in however many decades with lament and regret. Wisdom should come with gray hair. For many in our day, it's just going to come with regret for a life they never built, children they never had. The same is true with buying a house, pursuing an actual career instead of a subsistence wage. Got to make a decision. Got to trust the Lord. There is no faith in the life that is subsidized by somebody else. That doesn't have to be. Trust the Lord. Take your next step. Make a decision. And finally, and briefly, Proverbs uh, teaches that the proverbial man is content. This is point number four. The proverbial man is content. Now, I put this point here to provide necessary balance and clarity. There has been a lot from me of push, 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 and I don't apologize for any of that. That certainly needs to be heard. But it does need to be understood that there's a difference between pushing ahead for the glory of God and pushing ahead because you're not grateful for what God has given you. And the distinction between these two perspectives is that of contentment versus covetousness, which Solomon speaks of often. And for this aspect of our study, we're going to go through the pertinent passages, taking the time in between to expound uh, one before we move to another. And some of these warrant more explanation than others, so some of this will move through quite quickly. We start in Proverbs 17.1. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. This is a common result of a man who pursues vocational work at the expense of the spiritual and relational work that he's supposed to do in his home. In his godless lust for more money and more stuff, he trades peace for profit. Now, a man should seek to make a substantial living for his family and to support the work of the kingdom. But, brother, with respect to this, there is a point of diminishing returns. So how much money you can make cannot be the only factor in your choosing of a profession. Wicked men don't provide for their families due to laziness, but fools have families that they don't even know because they don't spend time with them. And what does it profit a man to lose his own soul, and what does it profit a father to pursue money to the point that he loses the souls of his children? Balance is needed. Our families need our incomes, but they need us more. Therefore, make sure that your work is for your family and not at their expense instead. Be sure that God is happier with a man who works hard and yet feeds his family the dry morsel while supplying them with peace than he is with the man of feasting whose household is falling apart. And that lesson is especially apropos for Americans. We are in the habit of saying we need much more often than that is actually true. A lot of people can get away with one car. And if you can, it's often better for you that you do. Your kids don't need all the technology. They don't need all that stuff. And if you break yourself from those things, then you'll realize you can live a lot simpler life and you can be there to impart spiritual wisdom to them instead of just being a paycheck. And the next passage that we'll consider very briefly is Proverbs 23, 4 through 5. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone, for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Now, that seems to be in contradiction to what we've been talking about, that wealth matters. And now Solomon is, it would seem, saying that it doesn't. In reality, that's not what he's saying. That's not what I'm saying either. His point is that people matter. So wealth matters when it's used to care for people, but when wealth becomes an end to itself, it becomes vanity. Vanity does not matter at all. The godly man does work for more, but not because he's not grateful for what he has rather as an expression of gratitude to the Lord. He ask if a man has great gifts intellectually or physically and he squanders them, is that gratitude to God? Of course it is not. That's why we work the land. Because we recognize the gifts that the Lord has given us, we recognize the potential value of the land that he has given us, and I'm speaking metaphorically here, you don't have to have land, but it is a lack of gratitude to bury your talent in the ground and not to invest what the Lord has given you. So that's not in contradiction to contentment. There's a difference, though, between contentment and satisfaction. A lack of satisfaction will drive you forward. Be content in all things, in every stage of life that you're at. Otherwise, you're going to miss the formative years of your children's growth and the great joy that you could have in them because instead you'll have this constant desire to get to more and more and more. So for us, I used to get offered jobs that were well-paying, that were in the sales profession, 
because of the nature of what I did that would take me away from my family, and I consistently turned all of those down. I've demonstrated that I'm willing to work very hard for my family, but I wasn't willing to do that because I knew and understood that the price for doing that would be higher than I was willing to pay. So let me ask you, and I'm going to end with this, a couple questions. Is there repentance needed in you, brother, with respect to any of the issues that we talked about? What are those? Plot out a course as to how you're going to fix those things. And my second question is, is there another brother in this congregation that as a result of this sermon, you who are mature need to be talking to after this? Because if there is, you need to actually have those conversations. As Dan has said many times, you need to not leave it to the pastor to do it or to the pastors. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this study. I hope that it was received well, Lord, and I pray that it will be put into practice. I pray, Lord, for our men, that they would not let their masculinity be robbed of them by any source, however well-meaning they may be, but that they would stand up and be the men that you have created them to be. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.